hear God's word. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Familiar passage, you're going to say, Pastor, you really are going senile because you just preached on that last week. Well, I'm going to come from a different angle this morning. Believe me, there's way more than one sermon in those words. Now, if I can get a witness. Um, so I was going to call this sermon, uh, What Would Jesus Do? And you'll see why in a moment. But the real title of the sermon is In His Steps. Because if you notice, that came right out of the text. We'll talk about that in a moment. All right, so in 1989, it was a good year, 1989. Why, Pastor Santo? Well, because that's the year I married my beautiful wife. It was in 1989. It was the same year that this guy right here, our youngest son, was born. So it was a good year for us. But at the same time in, in 1989, something else was happening in a different part of our country. A youth group leader named Janie Tinkleberg read the book In His Steps. Um, what would Jesus do? I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. By Charles Sheldon, a pastor from Kansas in the late 1800s. Now, now in order to help her teens and her youth group uh, remember to ask themselves throughout their lives, throughout their daily lives, what would Jesus do? She had bracelets made. That was the first ring bracelets uh, so that, that the, the, the young, the young uh, teens would remember to think, hey, what would Jesus do in this situation? And the idea went viral. After she printed a few bracelets, it went crazy. There was a big craze around the country. Everybody was aware of what would Jesus do. I, not me in particular. But most people were doing that. Um, and it was so, uh, so pervasive was this movement that, of course, right away when there's a movement that everybody feels like they have to do it, if it gets, it gets criticized, right? It, goes, it gets under a fine-tooth comb and people start picking apart uh, the idea. Uh, and some of the things people picked, picked apart, a couple of points they pointed out, uh, which are valid, is first of all, we don't always know what Jesus would do in any given situation. So that's kind of hard to follow for that reason. Secondly, we can't uh, always, and we, I should say we could hardly ever, pull off what Jesus would have done in our situation, even if we knew. In other words, of course, the problem is we're not Jesus. Fair enough. Okay. I hear you. But the biggest problem that some folks have with the saying, including myself, is I, I get concerned when, when folks will blindly uh, attempt at following this slogan outside of the biblical context in which the idea of the slogan is found. Now, I have reminded people on occasion myself, so I'm going to tell you this myself. It's not what would Jesus do. 
But what? What did Jesus do? Right? For us. And that's true. Because think about it this way. If we carry the burden, remember I read that verse earlier about Jesus said, come unto me, all you that heavy laden, right? Take my yoke upon you and you'll have rest. But if we carry the burden of doing what Jesus would do as a litmus test for our acceptance with God or for earning our Father's favor, then Jesus' example quickly turns from a blessing, what? Into a curse. Because if you divorce Jesus as our sacrificial lamb from Jesus as our example to follow, then you're doomed. I remember, uh, I loved studying about Martin Luther. I found his life fascinating. But one of the things he said is, beware that the devil doesn't use the commands of Jesus as the law to condemn you. Condemn. And that's what folks are concerned with here. And some people say, well, just change the acronym and that'll be helpful. Walk like Jesus walked. Listen, does that make it any easier? Can't do that perfectly either. And I usually use this illustration, and I've preached, I've mentioned this illustration so many times. Some of you, my good thing my wife's not in this room, her eyes would probably roll so far back in her head. But anyway, but I love this illustration because it makes the point perfectly. And I want you to please bear with me and hear it again in this context, because it's going to set up some really beautiful things that our Lord wants to tell us this morning. And it's the whole um, sermon that um, the, the illustration I gave a few weeks back about Pastor Stearns, how he was preaching in Philadelphia. And at the end of his sermon, someone came up to him and said, you know, I don't really like the way that you preach about the cross. I think instead of emphasizing the death of Jesus, you should far better preach Jesus the teacher, an example. And you might remember what Stearns replied. He said, if I presented Christ in that way, would you follow him? And the guy said, I absolutely would. Okay, he goes, okay, well, the first thing, do no sin. And the gentleman was taken aback. He said, well, I admit that I sin. I can't do no sin. And then he said, sir, you don't need an example. You need a savior. Amen. 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 We have to get that right first. Before we even have a discussion of following the example of Jesus, we have to get that so clear in our minds. Our greatest need is a savior, ultimately, not an example. So that means Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross is the only propitiation for our sins. Remember that big word, what it means? It means it averts God's wrath. Because the Bible tells us that we, like the rest of the world, we were objects of wrath before Jesus intervened on our behalf. All of our attempts at walking in humility like Jesus walked, all of our attempts to love as Jesus loved, all our best tries at, listen to this one, turning the other cheek, loving our enemies, not repaying evil for evil, forgiving. <laughs> How about that one? None of those things will make the grave if we're relying on those things for God's acceptance and for a right standing before God. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy, thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. 
from that alone. That's the gospel. Now, in some ways, I'm, I'm really glad that the what would Jesus do movement isn't as pervasive as it was in the 90s. Because let me tell you my biggest critique of it. Because as a standalone statement, it could be misleading and be more condemning than it was meant to be. In other words, it's plucked out of its gospel context and it's just a bare statement with no before and no after. In fact, when I polled my Facebook friends and the email, thank you all who, who responded to my question, uh, whether they found the phrase helpful or harmful, most of those who viewed the phrase somewhat negatively did so for this very reason. Because outside of the context of the gospel, it's basically just moralism. Right? One person even commented this way. It's very interesting. Reminds me of a time when I believed that if I tried hard enough, I could mimic Jesus. But now the sermon's going to take a, a, a turn that you probably won't expect. On the other hand, I believe that as long as it's understood in its proper scriptural context, we need to be asking ourselves, believers, those who are under the blood, those who have been saved by grace and know that Jesus is our substitutionary atonement, we need to be asking ourselves, how did Jesus walk? And then asking God to enable us to walk as he walked. It's not an illegitimate idea. The way that it was carried out was not uh, the best for sure, not ideal. We may have some very legitimate reasons for not liking the phrase itself or the moment, the, the movement that it created, like it's gimmickiness. That's another reason somebody said they didn't like it. But I believe some of us really, the reason we react so negatively to the very concept that it points to uh, the idea that Christians are called to follow the example of Jesus is because we are afraid of the imperatives of Scripture. You know what the imperatives of Scripture are? That's a little fancy way of saying commands. It's like the guy who said when I invited him to our church when I was in New York, he says, I said, I want you to come to our church. Oh, don't, don't give me no law. I just want grace. Now, if he meant it in the way that we just spoke of it, amen, law can't save. But if he meant, I mean, never mention what God calls us to do as his people, then no, I can't promise that. Why? Because here's the issue. This is the Bible's teaching. Listen, those for whom Christ died as a propitiation for their sins are called to follow in the steps of Jesus. In this message, we're going to see the relationship between Jesus as our sacrifice for our sins and as our example to follow. The two are not mutually exclusive. That's what I want to show you. And I want you to hold, you know, it's probably a little bit emotional right now because uh, the idea, it has a lot of heavy connotations, but I'm just asking you to bear with me uh, through this message. And I hope that I'm going to clear up some things from, for you from the very word of God. And I hope also to set you free, to see following Jesus' example not as something uh, uh, to dread, but as something to long for and delight in and look for. So we're gonna, I'm going to point out three things 
Not each point will be as long as the other, so don't be nervous. But here's the three. Jesus is our sacrifice before he's our example. I want to emphasize that for a few more minutes before we go into the other stuff. Secondly, Jesus is our example nonetheless. And third of all, and this is going to be the big takeaway I hope for you all, Jesus is our very present example. And that's awesome. And I'll explain that one at the end. So let's take a look at the first one. Jesus is our sacrifice before he's our example. It's so important that I just want to spend a couple more moments on this before we move on and look at the other things. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25. Uh, we read it this morning as well. And we saw that the Apostle Peter placed his exhortation for us to follow Jesus on the firm foundation of the work of Jesus on our behalf. In other words, he couched it in gospel language, right? So after he reminds us of these words, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps, he follows up with this vital reminder in verse 24. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to, sin, die to sins and to live for righteousness, for by his wounds you've been healed. But it's not the first time only that Peter uses this pattern. Real quick, in 1 Peter 1, I want to show you he does the same thing. In 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, 14, he says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, notice, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. <laughs> What's God saying there? Imitate me. But then he follows, the reason, he follows that up with the reason for why we should do so. Chapter 1 in verse 18, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. All right, one more. First Peter 3. So let's go to each chapter. No, we'll, we'll stop at 3. 1 Peter 3, he says this, It's far better if it's, uh, if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for evil. That's a summary verse of all the exhortations that went before in chapter 3. Uh, verses such as live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble, don't repay evil for evil. They kind of sound like exhortations to me, don't they? And what does he follow that up with, though? Does he leave it there? <laughs> Are those the verses that we just read them over and over and over again? That's what we're stuck with, like, on an endless loop? No, he adds this. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. It's not a coincidence, my brothers and sisters, this order that Peter uses. And it's not an afterthought. It's not an ab ab obligatory shout out to the gospel, you know, like when uh, our sports stars say, and, and it's all because of Nike. That's why, you know, and they, they feel like they have to do this and they get their, you know, money. No, that's not what this is. It's a very purposeful thing that Peter does when he couches the, the gospel, that's why I call them gospel exhortations with the indicative of what God has done for us in Christ. 
Christ died for us to bring us back to God. So listen to what that means. Into living communion with God. Life-giving fellowship with God. When you think, well, God, Christ died for us to forgive us of our sins. Of course he did. But did you know the purpose for this? Is so that you would be back in fellowship with God. That's the ultimate end, isn't it? So that you and God would be friends again. So that you could walk as a child in his family. My, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Old and New Testaments, and it might sound strange to you. It says when God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Why would that touch chord in my heart? Because isn't that the whole end of salvation? Is to bring us back to that relationship where we're no longer enemies? where there's no longer this huge wall that sin created, but that we can rejoice in one another, creator and creation, father and child, redeemer and the redeemed. And here's the thing, here's the thing. I think this really hit me. What good is an example to a corpse? You ever think of that? I could be the perfect example in front of a dead guy, and he's going to be deader than a doornail. Not be able to do anything about it. But to a new creation in Christ Jesus, alive in Christ, like the Bible says we are if we know him, Jesus then, his example becomes a light in a dark place, doesn't it? Because we're alive in Christ, made new. It then becomes a path to walk, a path to walk on that our Savior trod before that we might follow in his footsteps. And I'll tell you, the world we live in is becoming increasingly more and more uh, difficult to do so. So how much more we need that light, that example of Jesus to shine brightly on all these areas of life. To What would Jesus do? Well, we, you know what would Jesus do? Read the Gospels. We see what Jesus did do. So I told you I was going to mention the song we sang. Real simple song. You came from heaven to earth. Why? To show the way. But the song doesn't stop there. From the earth to the cross. Why? My sins to pay. My death to pay. And here's the beauty of what Peter's saying here about walking in his steps. Your Savior then becomes your model to follow. Clear? I was going to say it in Italian, chiaro, chiaro. Secondly, Jesus is, even though he's our savior before he's our example, he is our example nonetheless. So understood in that context, under those biblical gospel-focused parameters, following in Jesus' footsteps is not in and of itself moralism. I want you to understand that. It's not legalism. Or a well-intentioned idea that dooms us to failure and despair, right? That's what people are worried about. I remember praying with my buddy Tommy Graff. And I remember we were, we were having a lunch. And I said, Lord, help us this day to, to, to everything we think, everything we say and we do, that it would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. He goes, well, you really just set us up, didn't you? He said, <laughs> in other words, he's like, good luck with that. Well, remember my friend's comments earlier. When they said, reminds me of a time when I believed that if I tried hard enough, I could mimic Jesus. 
Well, Peter's saying this, first of all. He's saying, that's the whole reason Jesus died, because you can't mimic him perfectly. But secondly, there's another reason Jesus died. He says it in our text that we read. He died for us for a purpose, that we might die to sins and what? Live for righteousness. So Peter says, 1 Peter 2.21, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen, are we going to do so perfectly? Of course not. Thank God for the blood. But can, can you imagine how ungrateful it is to say, well, unless I can do it perfectly, I'm not going to try. Yeah, have your kids say that to you. You know, set the table up. Well, I can't do it perfectly like you. Is that going to fly in your house? First Peter 2, 20, I mean, First uh, John 2, 6. In case you think that it's just Peter, is a little strange here. Listen to these strong words of exhortation. This is from the Apostle John, by the way. He says this. Excuse me. Whoever claims to live in him, that's in God, must, take a guess, walk as Jesus walked. In that case, he's saying, you keep saying that you're a believer. You keep saying you're born again. You keep saying you're one of God's children. Show me. I want to see you living like him. I don't want to see you just talking about him and talking like him. I want to see you living like him. And in context, it's all about obeying his commands in 1 John and loving your brothers and sisters. Which for some reason, that's kind of the toughest thing for us to do in the church, isn't it? Sure seems like it. And yet that is the command other than love God. Okay, so I'm not going to just pick on Peter and John. Let's go to... to the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, guess how? Just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, what is Jesus there for us? He's our sacrifice, and he's our, say it, example. Right? Now, I'm not going to go on and on, but I do want to mention two other ones. Husbands, love your wives what? Oh, so husbands, listen up. You want an example of a godly man? You want an example of how to love your wife? See how Jesus loved the church. Of course, it meant the cross. Didn't it? First Corinthians 11, 1, Paul is bold enough to say this. Follow my example as I... Follow the example of Christ. Now the idea is not so much that in every complex, difficult, moral dilemma we face, we always know exactly what Jesus would do. That's why we have to pray for wisdom. We have, we have to seek many counselors. That's why uh, Paul prays that we would be given the wisdom and insight so that we would know how to apply the gospel in, in these many complicated things that we deal with in our modern world. No, but this is what it does mean. In a very general, basic sense, what was the Lord's pattern when he lived here? How did he live in a loving and in a gracious way in the midst of an unloving and uncaring and wicked world? Isn't that the big question for us? How, Lord? 
Well, how did Jesus do it? Peter gives us the example of how to suffer. You know, so I can't do miracles like Jesus. I can't do, no. But you know what you can do like Jesus? Listen, suffer. Because that's what Peter says. He suffered when when he was being uh, persecuted, unjustly treated. What did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly so that he would be an example to us who suffer unjustly. You get that? It's an incredible point of contact. Another Facebook friend on the positive side said that she said this, I was in youth groups in the 90s when this, uh, what would Jesus do uh, thing came out. And she said, I actually, at that time in my life, I needed a lamppost to show me the way. It's not all bad, is it? So here's the thing. It's not moralism to look at Jesus's example of love and action for guidance in our walk of faith. The Bible says that if we claim to live in him, then we got to walk like him. You know, I got to give myself away. I'm a classic rock guy. I grew up classic rock, prog rock. Remember, walk this way. Walk this way. Well, that's all he's saying. He's saying, walk this way. Talk this way. I'll stop the song lyrics there. Because here's the issue. Sometimes seeing Jesus, Jesus' example in action makes God's righteous will for our lives a little more clear and a little more understandable. And, and here, here's what I mean. Like when, when I learned how to preach, I learned principles of good preaching. I learned hermeneutics. I learned homiletics, blah, blah, blah. But you know how I really learned how to preach? I listened to good preachers. It's way more caught than taught. And I hear these guys say, you know, because I've had, you know, the theory. And then I would say, can you show me somebody who preaches this theory? And I've listened and I've been like. <laughs> so I thought, okay, whatever your theory is, I don't see anybody actually being able to pull it off. But then I went backwards and I heard somebody preaching and I'm like, that's what I want. How do I get to that? So Jesus, of course, is much, much more than our example. But let's make no mistake about it. He still is our ultimate model to follow. And we are called to it. (coughs) Excuse me. And the last thing I want to point out, and this is very important, is that how can we pull this off, right? That, that's a, what I'm finding one of the big issues is if it leads to moralism, I can't live like Jesus lives. It puts this heavy burden on my back. Well, listen, I'll tell you why Peter would say we have to walk on the steps and why it's not a burden. Because Jesus is not only our example. And this is the last thing, and I want you to listen up on this one. Don't fall asleep on me in this one. He's not only our example, he's our very present example. And this is what I mean by that. He's not only our pattern and our sacrifice for the many, many times that we fail daily to follow in his steps. But listen, he's our very present help that actually enables us to walk more and more like he walked. He brings us back into a vital living relationship, life-giving relationship with God. And so this is what we need to know. Our example is also our enabler through the Holy Spirit he promised to give everyone who believed in him. You, you know, I don't know if you are as fascinated as I am by this, but on which we're going to celebrate in a moment, the Lord's Supper. At the Last Supper, he said some pretty incredible things about the Holy Spirit. One thing he said to his people, his disciples, 
He said, it's better for you that I go. Because they were all upset. They kept saying, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. He goes, because unless I go, I can't send you the helper, the counselor. And then here's the mind blower. He's just like me. <laughs> that that should have made him go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, we were on a boat and you told the, the, the water to just stop. You told the storm to just knock it off. And it immediately obeyed you. It already blows our mind that you and the Father are one. Now you're telling us there's another one? But brothers and sisters, either Jesus is true or he's a liar. And we know he's, he's true. He says there's another one. The Holy Spirit. And he says he will be in you. So he's not just outside trying to show us some map of how to live. He's inside. Turning the lights on. The engine. So I want to close with the passage that we started with in our prep for worship. And now you see why I brought this, this passage up of all passages. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Jesus says these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a number of years back when I actually preached on this passage, I saw something that I had never noticed before. I quoted this verse a million times as a believer. I got saved in 1986. How many times have we heard these verses? But it was the first time I actually noticed this, and that's this. When Jesus invites us to come to him for rest, he invites us to do something that's not really that clear to us in the modern world. Take my yoke upon you. Like, what the heck is a yoke? Really? I don't, I don't live with yokes. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not on some farm. I grew up in the Jersey Shore. You know, and I, I spell it wrong, too. Y-O-L-K, and I think it's like the middle of my egg or something. No, what he's talking about in his world, in his day and time, when he was here with us in the flesh, he's talking about this wooden collar that would connect two oxen so that when they plowed, they would be in concert together on the same page, not going in different directions, but actually being able to be productive. And now what you have to understand what Jesus is actually inviting us to do, it should blow your mind. He's saying, I want you to be yoked with me. I'm going to be right next to you, connected by this yoke. So we are one. Take my yoke and guess what? My yoke's easy. My burden's light. Why? Because I'm humble. I'm gentle. If there's anybody in the universe who didn't have to be humble and gentle that could just throw around his weight, it's Jesus. And he has the right to. And instead, how does he deal with you and me? As a father does with his children. Gentle, humble. Oh, no, no, no. Let's try this again. Right? right? That's Jesus. I mean, that ain't me as a parent. You know, I'm like, what the? Hey, put that. Hey, how many times? Yeah, that's me. That's me. That's why Mary's always like, be a substitute teacher. Are you serious? I would be like, dude, I'm going to go over there and smack you. you know? And I would be like getting fired the first day. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, take the yoke. I promise you'll never regret it. Not only that, you're going to have rest. Because all that striving, trying to be like Jesus. Oh, if I'm not like Jesus, I'm going to be despondent. No, you're not. I'm here with you for all the times you mess up and you are going to mess up. But listen, 
He's not the old, accusing, exacting, unrelenting, unrelenting master of the letter of the law. Nor is he the demoralizing, demanding master of sin that wants to have us uh, in bondage to lust, materialism, and greed, and hate. No, he, his yoke is the one of the one who went to an executioner's cross for you. That changes everything. That changes the what would Jesus do thing. And so the end result when we comes to that, which I really didn't want to, that wasn't the main point of, the, of my sermon. I kind of tricked y'all. It's all about following the example of Jesus. But yes, the slogan, we don't need the slogan. But the truth to which it points is biblical. As God's people forgiven, dearly loved, dearly loved, we are called to follow in his footsteps for our own good. And that's the beauty of the cross, is that even when we fail, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know what, what John says? I'm going to close with this. I keep saying I'm going to close, I'm going to close. But I'm going to, Mayor would say, land the plane. Listen, I'll close with this. First John says, I write these things to you. Listen to this. So that you would not sin. It's the Apostle John. Then you know what he says? But if we do sin, we have an advocate. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. We have one who is the propitiation. See, for me, and I'm going to answer my question I asked everybody else. It's worth dying trying to be more like him. Even though I never will ultimately perfectly be like him. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. It's not ultimately about being able to follow you perfectly, following the Lord Jesus perfectly. It is all about what he did perfectly, obeying your law, laying down his life to pay the ransom for our sins. But we do thank you for the privilege and the honor of being called Christians. We thank you that we bear that name. And as the Apostle Peter says, we look to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior, our Lord, our older brother, on how to live in a wicked world. And even though we know we can't do so perfectly, we thank you for the clear guide that you are and that you live in us through your spirit and we are yoked to you if we know you and that you're with us every step of the way. So Lord, as we continue our worship through partaking in the supper you uh, told us to partake in as a means of grace, as we sing to you and as we eventually leave this room to serve you throughout the rest of the week, Lord, may we be more conscious of the one we're yoked to and may we find his rest, even in our labors. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.